0: This is the GGC Life Podcast. Before I launch into the teaching in this first session this morning, I just feel in my heart there are two things I need to say. The Old Testament tells very clearly that the Philistines, in order to conquer the Israelites, took the blacksmiths captive. They actually removed the blacksmiths out of the land. And so the scripture tells us that when it came to the day of war, only Saul and Jonathan had swords. I want to tell you this morning that fivefold ministry of the blacksmiths of the church. It's not the blacksmiths who go to war, but the role of a blacksmith is to equip you, the soldiers, to wage war together in partnership with fivefold ministry. Amen? Amen. It's not for the blacksmiths to show how good they are at wielding swords. And then we go home. But it's to equip you, the army of God, the end-time army of God, to wage war. Amen? Fivefold ministry is also like the attendance of the bride. To get the bride ready for the return of the king, for the groom. The bride belongs to the groom. Fivefold ministry of the bridal attendance. Getting her ready. Equipping her. And so when she walks down the aisle, you get the picture. It's all about her. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, we honor you, we thank you for your word that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. We present our hearts afresh to you this morning. It's been a good feed this week, Father, and we ask for grace for more. The Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come, you would teach us, equip us, Help me to put something of a sword in the hands of my brothers and sisters this morning. I ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I actually have the privilege of, firstly, Leo, thank you for the honor of preaching from your pulpit. It's truly an honor. It really is. I'm going to preach and teach in these two sessions on the unchanging King and the unshakable kingdom. I want to teach you about the kingdom of God. We've just come through the most profound week in the Christian calendar, and that week is called Passion Week, which began with Palm Sunday, or the Triumphal Entry, and ended with Resurrection Sunday, which was Easter Sunday. But after Easter Sunday, after Resurrection Sunday, 50 days passed before Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit was outpoured because Jesus Christ was exalted to the right hand of the Father. The evidence that you and I have of the exaltation of Jesus Christ is the outpoured spirit. And every sign, every wonder, every miracle, every act of justice, every righteous deed in the name of Jesus Christ is evidence of the exaltation of Jesus. Amen? That's why it is inexcusable to have a powerless church. It is inexcusable to have a powerless church. But what I want to do through the grace of God in this first session is I want to do what Jesus did to the best of my ability and what He did in between Resurrection Sunday and Pentecost, which is He taught for 40 days after His resurrection He taught about the kingdom of God. Can we turn to Acts chapter 1? Can we go back to my first slide, please? Slide 1. I'll tell you when to change them. Now, I'm just... None of these slides look like Jesus. I just want you to know that. Okay, I know he's not a, as a New Zealand would say, Pakia. he's not a white guy, I love art, so I know that's not Jesus, okay, I'm just putting that out there because it's amazing what actually happens when you preach, Acts chapter 1. This is Luke writing, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles He had chosen, after His suffering, He showed Himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. I'm sure he'd agree. It's obviously important to Jesus. For 40 days after his resurrection, he spoke about the kingdom of God. In fact, it's such it it was central to Jesus' message, the gospel of the kingdom. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God and said, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus begins His public ministry proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He continues His ministry to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus states the reason why he was sent. When they try to prevent him from leaving a particular location, he said to them, I must go to the other towns to preach the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, because that is why I was sent. He sends out the 12. What does he tell them to do? Go and preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Heal the sick, cast out demons, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. Freely you have received, freely give. He sends out the 72. What does He tell the 72 to do? Wherever you go, whatever town or village you go into, preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, raise the dead. Jesus said that the end will come when this gospel of the kingdom is preached to the whole world, and then the end will come, the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the Scriptures do say, Paul the Apostle says, what is of first importance is that Christ died for your sins. That's of first importance. But do you know that every all these instructions, when you go through the the gospels, all the instructions from Jesus Christ to the disciples, from the announcement and proclamations of John the Baptist, to Jesus proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and demonstrating the reality of his rule and reign to the set the twelve, the seventy-two. Do you realize that every instruction for them to go out and preach the gospel preceded the cross? It was before the cross. I want you to pause and have a cellular moment on that. The gospel is of first importance that Christ died. But when they went out to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, Jesus had not gone to the cross yet. In actual fact, they had no idea of the cross when they went to preach the gospel. Now, I'm not a heretic. Because the cross is central, and it is the doorway. It is the entryway. It is the only way into the reality of the kingdom of God. But it's interesting to think about this gospel of the kingdom. And that's what we're going to look at in part one and part two. It's an interesting thing. And even when they said to Jesus, Lord, how should we pray? He said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Even in praying, he taught them to pray for the kingdom of God. I think we can agree it's very important to Jesus Christ. And we see the sweep of this proclamation of the gospel message all the way through the book of Acts. Could I have slide two, please? I'm going to teach you on the kingdom of God. And so in this first part... What I want to uh, do this morning is I want to tell you a story about a psalm, a cool psalm, about a powerful prophet, an amazing messenger angel called Gabriel. I want to talk to you about the God-King who organized His own public unveiling, or His big reveal, to Israel and to the world. That's part one. In part two, I want to teach you about the nature and character of the kingdom of God. And I'm trusting through the grace of God, by the time we leave here this morning, you will have a clearer picture of what the kingdom of God is. And you'll be able to articulate it wherever you go. Because if it is such an important message, and it should be the central culture of every single church on this planet, a gospel-centered culture, not a peripheral add-on or extra, there's a shift that needs to come in the body of Christ on the planet today. And that's the centrality of the gospel of the kingdom of God of which the cross is at the center. Amen. Amen. Which we're going to see this morning. And so we're going to look at give me slide 2 please. I want to talk to you about the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. We're going to read our key text, is Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read from verses 1 to 22 for those taking notes. And we're going to read the account also in Luke chapter 19, verses 38 to 44. But before we do, I want to tell you a backstory. You know, behind every story, there's a backstory. I heard someone once say, "If you don't know the backstory, just shut up." Every person's got a backstory to why they do what they do, the way they behave. With you know, you understand what I'm saying? There's a backstory behind every story. And until you know that story, often we just got to zip it. Behind the triumphal entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday, outside of Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, Palm Sunday is my favorite day of all the year. And I'm going to share this story of Palm Sunday with you. But behind the triumphal entry, there's Psalm 118. We haven't got time to go and read through all the scriptures, so just in those taking notes, Psalm 118, this is the day, verse 24, can you say the day? This is the day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is a messianic psalm, and it was directed at Israel. Let us, Israel, rejoice and be glad in it. And for us, as disciples of Jesus, it is the day that we should be rejoicing and being glad in it. But we've got to know why we should be glad in this day. It says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And from the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God. And He has made His light shine upon us with boughs in hand. That's where palm branches come from. With boughs in hand, join in festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His love endures forever." We know on the day when Jesus was riding on the, on the, on the, on the back of a, the colt of a donkey, they were singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They were crying out to the Christ. There were groups of people in the crowd that had recognized that he was the Messiah, the promised king, the anointed one, the Christ. And they were singing, Hosanna in the highest. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, I'll read it quickly. The prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9 said this Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, daughters of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Don't you love prophecy? This lady prophesied over me two days ago. I've been a pastor for 24 years. Got saved in 1992. And she's got no idea what she said. But she was just saying what God was saying. Don't you love prophecy? Here's this prophet Zechariah. Wow. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to look at the backstory of the triumphal entry and then we're going to go and read it in the Gospels with insight. Amen? In Daniel chapter 9. First off, can we go to chapter 1 very quickly so I can put chapter 9 in context. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. Context here is that the Babylon has conquered Israel. Israel had been taken into captivity. Amongst those who are taken into captivity in Babylon is a young boy by the name of Daniel, Daniel the prophet, with his mates, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So let me pause and give you context. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied That Israel would be taken into captivity by the Babylonians for 70 years. It was a prophecy. Now you've got 70 years later, after the captivity, yeah, is Daniel the prophet reading Jeremiah the scroll. And he goes, hello. Hello. The 70 years are up. Now, for the prophets and those who have had prophetic words, I think this is one of the best teachings on what to do with a prophecy. What does Daniel do? He cries out to God. He fasts and he prays. And he wages warfare and he cries out to God. He didn't just sit back and say, 70 years are up. Jeremiah the prophet, 70 years are up. Let's go and party. He knew that he had to fight the good fight in keeping with the prophetic words that were spoken over the nation of Israel. Paul said to Timothy, fight the good fight. Following the prophecies that have been spoken over you. You've got to wage war over the things that God has said. God gives things in seed form. You've got to take them, as Cliffy said, into, the, into your spiritual womb and you've got to travail. And it's exactly what David did. I mean, Daniel did, because it actually says that he, he says in verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all those who love him and obey his commands. Then he goes on and he confesses his own sin and the sins of his people. And he cries out to God, when are you going to deliver Israel out of bondage? When are you going to deliver us? Seventy years, Lord. When is it going to happen? What's going to happen? When are you going to redeem Israel? And I love this. Steven Spielberg could not have dreamt this or even thought this up. Let's go to verse 20 of chapter 9 of, 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 of Daniel. What I'm doing is giving you the backstory to Palm Sunday. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, <laughs> Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, I think that's incredible. God could have spoken directly to Daniel, sends him the messenger archangel called Gabriel. Incredible. Doesn't say he had wings. There's no end scripture that says angels have wings, by the way. Except the cherubim. Seraphim. <laughs> Even though it's Swift flight, Superman doesn't have wings, and he flies. the fault of all these pictures at the back. (laughs) As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. I'm going to read this verse. I'm going to interpret it, and we're going to move on to the triumphal entry. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression. To put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And then, verse 5, he says to Daniel, "No and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem... Until the anointed one, the holy ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off. In other words, crucified. And will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. And then in the middle of the sevens, and he goes on. What is going on here? I love God. I love the fact that he gives you riddles. It's like orienteering. Go to this coordinate and look for this clue. When you've got that clue, go to the next clue. The book of Proverbs says it's to the honor of God to conceal a matter and to the honor of kings to reveal it. Yeah. Kings, you, to seek out what God has concealed. That's why I spoke in parables, not to make simple stories. <laughs> what is going on here? Now, I haven't got time to really unpack this. But he does speak of the anointed one being cut off, which is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He does talk about the city being laid siege. Do you remember the disciples said to Jesus, Jesus said, that, Oh, look at that. They said, oh, Jesus, look at the temple. Wow, look how awesome it is. And Jesus said, Not one stone will be left upon another. Do you remember he said that? Well, In AD 70, the 5th, the 10th, the 12th, and the 15th, Roman legions under the leadership of Titus Vespasian laid siege of Jerusalem and sacked the temple. They removed every stone and killed a million Jews in one go. Incredible. That's in this. That's what happened. But Gabriel says to Daniel, you have been crying out and praying for the redemption of Israel and the redemption of obviously the world, because it's through all nations, through you, that people will be blessed. What is he saying? Well, let me tell you what he is saying. He says, from the issuing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, to the coming of the Son of God, to the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One, will be 173,880 days. I haven't got time to unpack this, but I'm indebted to the late Sir Robert Anderson, who was the head of Scotland Yard in the 1800s. (laughs) 173,880 days. The issuing of the decree was the trigger to rebuild Jerusalem. The book of Nehemiah tells us that Artaxerxes Longimanus in Nehemiah has got the date. He issued the decree for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. The date is in Nehemiah chapter 2. Go and have a look at it. And that was the 14th of March, 445 B.C. Track with me. This has all got to do with the kingdom of God. The 14th of March, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes, longamanus Issues the decree, rebuild. Now we know the Romans changed the calendar. The Jewish calendar and the Bible calendar is 360 days a year, not 365. So Gabriel says to Daniel, from the issuing of the decree, I want you to count 173,880 days. And God Is going to have His unveiling on planet earth. The Son of the Most High God is going to reveal Himself and He's going to redeem Israel and redeem the world. Do you know what date that was? The 6th of April, 32 AD, Palm Sunday. The sixth of April, thirty-two A.D., Jesus arranged his own unveiling. The King and his kingdom was unveiled to Jerusalem and to the world. The day, the exact day, a calendar day. And so the heading of that first point was this. The triumphal entry is kingdom revealed. Kingdom revealed. Let's go and read Matthew chapter 21. You now have the backstory, something of the backstory. Matthew 21 from verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now, this is Zechariah 9. Okay? That's the backstory. Jesus never allowed them. He even told the demons to keep quiet. They wanted to make Him king. There were a whole bunch, even His own disciples wanted to make Him king. It was not His time. Not my time. Not my time. Be quiet. Be quiet. Be quiet. Oh, Son of God, have you come to me? Not my time. Here's the first time that Jesus organizes His own unveiling to the world. He gave them glimpses of the reality of His world, of His reign, through signs, wonders, and miracles. And grace and righteousness and justice and love and peace. The kingdom of God, the Father, is revealed in and through the person and the works of Jesus Christ. Amen? Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead him, And those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Which means God save us. God save us. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. My brothers and sisters, if you see him as a prophet only, like in his own hometown, and that's your context we're going to see in a moment, you'll just lay your hands on a few and they'll get healed, but you see him as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ, the Anointed One, you'll be... like. A, 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 what, what town did he go to after, after Nazareth? No. Help me here. He went from Nazareth to... Gennesaret, come on, are you with me? You can either be a Nazareth group of people, miracle here and there, or Gennesaret. When he came to Gennesaret, they ran all over the countryside with their stretchers, they took the sick and the the lame, the oppressed. You know what it actually says? He healed them all. The leaders that are here, you've got to learn to build a Gennesaret culture in your church rather than a Nazareth culture where it's a little healing here or there. we have got to break through, Amen. Do you agree? Good stuff. Jesus entered the temple area. I love this. And drove out those, all those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables on the money cha- of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The gospel of Mark takes it a little further. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. We're going to see the significance, the kingdom significance on all of these events in a moment. House of prayer for all nations. The blind and the lame came to Him at the temple. Where did they come? To the temple. Who is the temple of the living God today? The blind and the lame came to Him at the temple and He healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that He did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Do you not hear what these children are saying? They asked Him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. And He left them and went out of the city to Bethany where He spent the night. Verse 18 We're going to come back to a few points there. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Is that slide up. Thank you. May you never bear fruit again. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither? They asked, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in my name. If you very quickly can turn with me, please, to Luke's gospel. Then we're going to look at some points. Let's go to Luke, chapter 19. I've had some people say to me, Michael, when you go through the Gospels, why are some accounts in one Gospel slightly different to another? Is it conflict? Does it show that there's an error? Of course not. I used to practice law. I was a barrister for a while. The deal is this. If you're at an intersection and you're standing on this corner, and you're standing on the other corner, and you're standing on the other corner, Ryan, and Leo, you're standing on this corner waiting for the traffic lights to change, and there's an accident. You all see the accident from a different vantage point. And all that you you see is truth. You see what actually happens from a different viewpoint. That's the four Gospels. Amen? You got that? They don't conflict, they complement. Okay. If they were all four exactly the same, and you're standing on all four corners, then in law it's called collusion. You get up in a court of law, you know, and you're all, your, all your witnesses are saying exactly the same thing, and they're all like family. It's like, oh, this is a conspiracy, you know? It's, it's true. This is a little side rabbit issue. It's like, I mean, you know, when, you're, when your greatest enemy gets up in a court of law, who hates your guts and has actually killed some of your family, and gets up and says, no, no, Michael, I was there. He's innocent. You know how much weight is on their testimony when your enemy says you're innocent? That's why Paul the Apostle wrote such a big portion of the New Testament. He was an enemy of God and an enemy of the church. Became the greatest witness. Awesome, let's move on. (laughs) Let's look at Luke's Gospel. Chapter 19. Let's read from verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Oh, gosh. I'm trusting that in these two sessions you're going to pick up Jesus the shepherd, Jesus the pastor. We're going to look at the character of the kingdom of God in the next session, which is the shepherd. The good, the great, and the chief shepherd, the pastor. Amen? As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had have known of this day. Can you say this day? This day. This day of uh, this day that would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the, the time of God's coming to you. Do you understand, Daniel? Do you understand why this was such a big deal? It was a calendar date. The second advent of Jesus, you will not know the day nor the hour, but you will know the season. Jesus held them, and the Father held them accountable to missing the unveiling of God on earth. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? Now, we've covered the triumphal entry. Let's look at two. My next point is this, kingdom received. Let's go to Matthew chapter 21 again quickly. Matthew 21. The first point with the triumphal entry was kingdom revealed. And I want you to just grab this. That the word kingdom's got two words in it. It's king and dom. King and domain. You take the king out of the kingdom, you are just (laughs) dom. Here we go. You can't separate them. (laughs) In verse... 10 and 11 of Matthew 21, it says that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. The second point is this, kingdom received. The first point for the triumphal entry was kingdom revealed. And the main point under all of what I've showed you, shown you so far is that the kingdom of God is revealed through the person and the works of Jesus Christ? If you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, Christ likeness, universalized, Christ likeness in everything. And people say, well, what is the kingdom? Well, let me tell you about the king. <laughs> Let me tell you about Jesus. Don't get into all sorts of flaky stuff. Just go back to the king. Because he revealed his world. And the reality of his world. Amen? So but Matthew chapter 16, and the second point is kingdom received. In brackets, after that put keys. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. All the law and the prophets were pointing to the Christ who had come. He says, You're the Christ. I want to pause for a moment. I think too many disciples of Jesus are stuck in the historical Jesus. We know the Jesus from 2,000 years ago. But he's the Christ, he's the anointed one. The devil is not anti historical Jesus, he's anti Christos, he's anti Christ. Think about that. He is, anti, he is the anti-Christ. Are you with me? You get what I'm saying? He's anti-the anointing. He's anti-the anointed one, and He's anti-anointed sons and, God, sons and daughters of God. He's anti-the anointing upon your life. He will come and debate you and tell you it doesn't work anymore, and that was for back then, and what's coming against you in that argument? It's the spirit of anti-Christ. That's why a powerless priesthood of all believers is inexcusable. And that's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, you shut the kingdom on the people. You yourselves will not enter. And you prevent others from entering. He cursed them. Don't entertain that spirit. Just burn just burn, amen? Just burn. People love to watch things burn. Don't ignite a car outside you in the street and you'll gather a crowd very fast. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for the this was not revealed to you by a man, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock... Christ, rock, on Christos, the anointed one, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Matthew said kingdom of heaven, and it's exactly, it's the kingdom of God. wasn't because he was wrong. Jews wouldn't write out the name of God. They'd substitute the word God with another word, and that's, Just the incredible reverence. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. (laughs) It was only on the triumphal entry. Hosanna. Amen? So it's a profound question that you need to answer today. Because you cannot receive the reality of the kingdom of God in your life unless you answer this question: who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say that He is? Is He the Christ? Or is He just someone else? Is He just your insurance policy? There are implications in the confession, huge implications. And broad is the way of many Christians who haven't truly answered this question because this question elicits a response. It's interesting. The keys of the kingdom. I'm staying at a hotel down the road. They've given me a key, a key card. I can't enter the room without the key. But I can open and shut that door with the key. Are you with me? Yeah. The key is a symbol of authority. Yeah. It's a symbol of entry. Yeah. It's a symbol of opening and closing. Yeah. Some have just reduced it to binding and loosing demons. It's just such a narrow interpretation of what the keys of the kingdom are. Yeah. What he is actually saying, it was a metaphor, a Jewish metaphor. Whatever you agree on earth in the name of Jesus, it will be agreed in heaven. Yeah. Whatever you prevent and prohibit on earth, is prohibited in heaven. Binding and loosing is opening and closing. It's it's actually so important that we grasp this because some of you need to leave this place and if you leave this place with anything, you got to understand that you have the keys, the authority of the kingdom of God because of your confession of Christ. He gives you the authority and the power of his, His kingdom in the metaphor of keys. And so some of you need to go bind and loose. There's some things you need to go and do. And so... You shall not pass. I bind, I close, I prohibit, I cancel. No more over my children. No more over my finances. Everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of who Jesus is, you have the authority to bind. And you have the authority to open or to loose. That's why he's the Antichrist. He hates us. The next point, next slide, please. I'm going to have to actually press on quickly. I haven't even got through here. Now, the next slide, slide four, please. Have you ever stopped to think why Jesus booted over the tables? It's pretty brutal. Imagine going to a conference. Leo invites me to a conference. Just pretend I'm Jesus for a moment. And you've got all the leaders, you've got the fivefold ministry for the first 50 rows. Big capacity, men and women. And I'm in the back room. You're wondering why I'm delaying coming out to the pulpit, and I come walking out. What is he carrying? Is it a scepter? What's that in his hand? Looks like some tassels. Gee, those things look gnarly on the end. What what is he doing? And he just starts to start starts whipping people, (laughs) kicking their chairs over, kicking the tables over. I wouldn't invite him back to my conference. What was going on here? When he booted the tables over, he said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And so this point is simply this, is kingdom reduced and replaced. The kingdom of God reduced and replaced. That's what was going on in this scene. You see, the money changes and the things that were taking place were taking place in the court of the Gentiles. God had said to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will bless you, and all nations will be blessed through you. The court of the Gentiles was the place where the non-Jews would come into the temple court areas, into the court of the Gentiles, and they would see the prophetic foreshadowing of the king and the kingdom. And it was being obscured. And so the sacrifices and the blood and all the lambs and all the things that were going on, the temple was the place where God met man. He said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all ethnos, for all nations. They were obscuring and depriving non-Jews through what was going on from coming into the temple and seeing the foreshadowing of the king and the kingdom, the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world, that would engage God in the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go in because there was stuff going on. And so here really is the challenge for me and the challenge for us. I want you to, for those taking notes, take down Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 to 7. Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 to 7. I do want to say this the best interpretation of Scripture is not a commentary, but Scripture. Before you run to your commentaries, let Scripture interpret Scripture. And if you don't quite understand a passage, write it down and leave it. Then come back to it at a later stage before you hit a commentary. Scripture will always interpret Scripture. That's the way it's meant to be. Isaiah 56, I'll read it very quickly. It says this, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." They had desecrated the court of the Gentiles and defiled the picture of the coming Messiah, the king of the kingdom. Isn't that amazing? And that's why he booted. And so the application for all of us is simply this. There's an individual application here and a corporate one. Is there anything in the court of the Gentiles in your own life? What tables would Jesus come and kick over in your own home, in your own heart, that are preventing your neighbors and the Gentiles, unbelievers out there, from coming to him? That is an application. How are you living your life? Are people coming into your court of the Gentiles because they are attracted to what is going on in your life? At a corporate level, and as a leader, this is for me. This is a shocking thing, for me personally as a church leader. What are we doing as a church? What are we offering to the world? What do they see when they see us? What are we giving them? And Please don't get me wrong. Homiletics, hermeneutics, are we giving them uh, uh, Calvinism and Arminianism? Or are, we giving them, uh, 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 are we giving them anointed, not anointed? Or are we giving them... What are we actually giving them? Because my reading of Scripture is that we are to present to the world as the church the gospel of the kingdom of God the rule and reign of God. And we're going to see the nature and character of that kingdom in session two. Let me give you some shocking illustrations here. You know, honey, I shrunk the kids. (laughs) Honey, I shrunk the kingdom. If you preach a gospel of salvation only, you've given a partial gospel. You've got people saved enough for life hereafter, but not empowered enough for victory in life here now. Of first importance, Christ died for us. Martin Luther said this, that any gospel that does not permeate every strata and aspect of life and society is no gospel at all. What are we giving them? What are we giving them? Have we replaced it with something else? The Jews actually said in Acts chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They reduced it to Jewish Zionism. It's us. It's our thing. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They shrunk it to Zionism. Their thing. Isn't it amazing? Honey, I shrunk the kingdom. You're a group of, have you heard of the Crusades? Let me just run through a quick cameo of history quickly the Crusades. They had a, the, the, the Jews in Acts chapter 1 shrunk it. They had no idea of the magnitude of what Jesus was bringing into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Incredible. The Crusades had a twisted view of the kingdom of God. It was triumphalism. We're going to take it over at all costs. We're going we're to rule and reign, man. We're going to get our number one man in government, man. You know what we're going to do? He's, he's going to lead the way. It was politics. That's triumphalism. That's what the Crusaders did. They had seven Crusades throughout Europe, and it was through blood and violence. They went against the Muslims with blood and violence. And they sowed a seedbed, a fountain of hate and conflict through the centuries. They didn't offer the kingdom of God, they wore crosses on their chests and swords. They gave a substitute kingdom. And Europe's paying the price. Let me tell you about the Mongols and Genghis Khan for a second. In 1246, Genghis Khan sent a letter to Pope Innocent IV, seeking to establish diplomatic trade relations between the Mongol Empire and Europe. And so he sends a letter through, through a man called John of, uh, John of Plano Carpini in 1247. Listen to this. I want to weep when I read this. And in his letter, it's called a letter to the Pope. You know what he actually says? I'm going to quote the letter, a portion of the letter. And this is the quote. He says, we have heard that your lordship is the chief of the Christians. We too acknowledge there is only one God, the creator of heaven and earth who gives us everything. We wish to know more about him and to serve him better. We therefore send you this letter to beg you to send us a hundred teachers well-learned in your faith and able to prove it by word and deed and well-versed in the seven arts or the seven mountains or the seven gates. Wasn't some guy 10 years ago wrote a book on the seven mountains? This goes back here. There's nothing new under the sun. Originality is the art of concealing your sources. That's all it is well versed in the seven arts, that they may be able to teach the youth of our land. If you send them, we will welcome them as a father welcomes his children and we will honor them with great honor. If it is not convenient to send them, then send us your letters of blessing and goodwill that we may know that you are our friend. The Pope did not send them. One historical count, and I'm not sure how accurate it is, says that the response through one person that was sent years later was, align yourselves to our ecclesiastical order and come under the rulership of of Rome. What would have happened? Court of the Gentiles, what tables would be booted over? Italy was not offered the kingdom of God but a papal ecclesiastical system instead. So Italy made the state supreme and chose fascism and brought the country into defeat and collapse. Germany, through Nazism, made the German race supreme when the German church offered a salvation and a kingdom after death. The Americans, even in the church, have offered the American dream. What are we offering the world? What are we offering the world? Fascism made the state supreme, Nazism made race supreme, communism has made the proletariat supreme, capitalism has made money supreme. What are we making supreme in our churches? There's a tide that's rising. Gospel of the kingdom of God. We're offering them every issue except the kingdom of God. I'm going to bring this session to a close. I'm going to pray, and then we'll come back. I want to teach you on the nature and character of this kingdom, what it looks like, by looking at the king. Amen. Could I have slide five quickly, please? We know in the Matthew account that Jesus ends off after weeping because they missed his unveiling. After booting over tables, he looks at the fig tree and he curses the fig tree. He looks for fruit, and what does he see? The Scriptures tell us he sees leaves. <laughs> you know what he says? The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. We are going to look at the fruit of the kingdom in the next session. This gives me shivers, because the kingdom, he said, will be taken away from you and I'm going to give it to a people who will produce its fruit. What about you? If you're a teacher, preacher, it doesn't matter who you are, run back, get into your Bible, and just begin to work out what kingdom fruit is. I'll teach you some of that in the next session. He says, I'll take it from you, and I'm going to give it to them, produce its fruit. He cursed the tree. The fig tree is a metaphor for Israel. And what did he find? He found leaves. The fruit were for the nations. And all they got were leaves. And leaves were just a a leafy tree as a metaphor for religion. And so the fig tree, which was meant to be a blessing, where all nations would be able to eat of the fruit of the fig tree because they were a kingdom people, meant to be a priesthood, he curses the tree. And the most profound thing is this. To use the tree metaphor. The Garden of Eden, you've got a tree. Israel becomes a tree. Jesus speaks about a kingdom will be like a tree, a seed. But the kingdom tree began at Calvary. It was the tree that Christ was crucified on. It gave birth to the kingdom of God. They're profound. Please bow your heads. Lord Jesus, I ask and pray that not one of my brothers and sisters would sit here today and feel condemned. Conviction, yes, Lord. I ask and pray, Father, that we would be bearers of the fruit of your kingdom. I pray for those of us, Lord, who are leaders, elders, fivefold ministry, that you would captivate our hearts with the glory and the majesty of your rule and reign. That you would captivate us, Lord, all of us, everyone in this room. that we would buy the field to get a hold of the treasure, that we would sell all to get a hold of that pearl, that we would seek it first and your righteousness in all that we do. I pray that our lives and our churches, Lord, would once again be ignited with the glory and the power and the depth and the wisdom and the majesty of your rule and reign. I ask that. In the precious, precious, precious name of Jesus Christ, Amen, 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 Amen. We're gonna take a break. All good. We're gonna come back. Just paint some strokes. Make the kingdom clearer. Share a few more stories. And then we go home. (laughs) I think. Bless you all. I mean, no one's moving. Um, Any questions? Thanks for listening to the GGC Life podcast. We hope you feel encouraged. Be blessed.